Good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. Hey, we're going to be in uh, 2 Peter. If you want to grab a Bible and open it up there, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I encourage you to grab your phone, download the Version app. It shouldn't take but a minute, and you can follow along that way. We, we generally use the NIV version uh, here at Grace, and so you can follow along with that if you would like. Um, we're going we're gonna, to—you guys all have a good New Year's celebration, yeah? How many of you guys, like, you were kind of like, uh, you went to bed at like 8— and just woke up the next day. Is that, yeah, I, I, I got to admit, we, we stayed up and we were playing cards until 11 o'clock Minnesota time, which is like 10 o'clock Colorado time, right? But that is, if you're not thinking, right, that's midnight New York, right? So then you watch the ball drop and you go to bed, right? Like, that's kind of what we did. But uh, hopefully you had a, a great Christmas, New Year's celebration and uh, getting back into the swing of things. I don't know if you're like me, but when my pattern in life changes, like my day-to-day pattern changes, it really throws me a lot, and especially when it changes for like a couple weeks, like it has these past couple weeks. So I'm a little like out of sorts, you know, I'm trying to wrap my head around normal patterns, and my my wife and my son are still in Minnesota, they're coming back later tonight and stuff, so um, so anyway, so we're trying to, we're trying to, uh, you know, I'm trying to adjust, and right now I got three dogs at home, and I'm their only toy, you see, you know how that goes, but uh, hey, let's pray before we uh, dig in this morning. Dear God, I just... Thank you so much for your grace, for your love, for your mercy in our life, Lord. As we look at your word this morning, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts, that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds, uh, that we would understand well what you would have for us, but also that we would embrace that and apply it to our lives. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, how many of you guys made New Year's resolution? Anybody? A couple of you? Okay. This is like last service too. I don't know what it is about grace. Like a lot of people don't make New Year's resolutions, which is fine, I suppose. But, you know, it's kind of one of those things where there is a time, and I think New Year's is one of those where it's, it's good to reflect, right? I'm not chastising you, all right? I don't care if you made New Year's resolutions or not. But it is a good, good time to reflect, to look back on the previous year, consider things, maybe think about, you know, your life and where you're at and, and do I want to make some changes for the next year? And, um, of course, then the obvious thing to do once you decide what you want to do is to, is to post all your New Year's resolutions on Twitter, right? Like that's what everybody does. Well, I, I decided to go on Twitter and find some New Year's resolutions. That's not what I do anyway. I, I have a Twitter account, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's been a while. But I, I went on Twitter and, uh, and I, I just looked up some New Year's resolutions, see what people were posting. I found a number of them that I thought were interesting. I liked this one. This one was um, my, resolution, my New Year's resolution is to stop listening to Siri give me directions. I can get lost by myself. But that was pretty good. Uh, another one I found was this. Uh, uh, stop sharing posts on social media before I do some research. Fake news, right? Um, I thought this one was pretty funny too. This came with a graphic, which I won't show you um, it, just because I don't have it. But it says, it says, stop doing all those stupid dances from Fortnite. Which I did. I was not aware of this case because you, if you're like me, you don't you don't play video game stuff. You don't know what Fortnite is, and you're wondering, well, what dance is that? Well, is this ringing any bells? <laughs> right? Am I doing it right? I'm not sure. Am I doing it? Okay. Where's my son when I need him? Right? I, I didn't know the the floss dance was from Fortnite, but I agree with that resolution. We should just like immediately stop anybody from doing the the floss dance. Uh, um, <laughs> this one might not be a good idea. But one, one, one person tweeted, I'm going to tweet what I really think. That could be scary. <laughs> May not be wise in some, 
some moments. So another one said, I'm going to eat more meat. I thought, as long as it's bacon, right? Bacon makes everything better. This is probably my favorite of the ones I found. This one was, uh, my goal for 2020 is to accomplish the goals of 2019, which I should have done in 2018 because I promised I would in 2017 after I planned them in 2016. <laughs> I thought that one was pretty good. Well, I hope you, I hope you do make some, some goals or some resolutions. I, 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 I'm a fan of goals. I think goals are good in a sense, but I don't I think they're sufficient by any means. Um, but they can be a good thing. It's good to reflect on life and to think about things you might want to change. But as you do that, and as you think about, maybe you reflect on the previous year and, and, and going forward, I hope that at least one or two of those things might be some spiritual things. Might be some things that you set goals for as far as how you're going to move forward. For instance, one of my goals this year is, um, is, is to read the book of Revelation every month. And I'm going to read a, a commentary to go along with it every month. And just to, just to kind of, you know, wrap my head around it, you know, if I, as I look at the Bible, that's one of the more, I think, difficult books of the Bible to understand. So I'm just going to read it a lot. And I'm going to, and I'm going to read what people think. That's one of my spiritual goals, to understand God's word, especially that part of God's word a little bit better. And you should have some goals as far. It could be, I, I want to I pray more or whatever. And, and that's not enough, by the way. If you, it's like saying, I want to be a better person. Okay, what does that look like? You, you know, to really define those things. I'm going to spend X amount of time in prayer each day, change the pattern of how I live. I hope you will do that with your spiritual life. But we're, we're actually starting a series and the slide isn't right. And I don't know, some of you will probably email us, but on the front of your bulletin, it doesn't say, Un- unlocking the secret of the Christian life. It says, ooh-locking the, spe- the, the secrets of the Christian life. So we'll fix that for next week. So they tried to throw up a slide and they kind of got it quite, not quite right, but unlocks the power of scripture. That's not quite right. But we're, we're unlocking the, uh, the, the secret of living the Christian life. That's the new series that we're in. And, um, and since we got the graphic wrong, they tried to help me out uh, with, with, that, with that one. So we're gonna, we're gonna be looking at that. It's a brand new series. And, and the honest truth is it's not really much of a secret, but everybody likes to have a secret, right? It's like grandma's secret, like fried chicken recipe or something. Like there's a secret to it. And we, we're like, wow, you know, there's a secret to it. And then we, we, we always love grandma's fried chicken, not because it's really that special, but just because she's grandma, right? And she always just did it well, but it's probably not really a secret recipe. It's, and then that's the way it is with the Christian life. There's actually no secret to this. I don't have some new revelation to share with you. What I want to show you is what's been written down for 2,000 years, uh, roughly, in Second Peter. And, and, and I think it will help us as we think about what it is to live the Christian life and the secret, if you will. It's not really a secret, but the recipe to, to what that looks like. And so as we look to 2 Peter, and Peter writes this, uh, like I said, almost 2,000 years ago, and he writes specifically to uh, a group of, of Christians in Asia Minor, and the context in which th- that they're living in, there was a lot of false teachers go- around. There were people teaching false doctrine and, 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 and false moral uh, morality and things like that. And so, so Peter writes to them, understanding the context that they're in and, and recognizes that in that context where they're being bombarded by all of these different ideas about theology and doctrine and all these things, and, and, and some of them were false ideas, wrong ideas, he wanted them to strengthen their faith in the midst of that so that they would be on a solid foundation. And so he writes Second Peter in that, in that context. And, uh, and as I was thinking about that context, it's really not 
that much different from the context that we're in. I mean, if you think about it, and of course we live in a, in a media-powered world, you know, media is everywhere, it's on our phones, it follows us around, it sends us alerts on our phones, our phones vibrate when things are, you know, whatever, new, new Insta faces or face tweets or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff, and um, that was a joke, by the way, I do know what those things are, but, um, you know, like our phone's constantly telling us about all these things going on in media, and it's 24 hour a day news media world we live in. And there's a a lot of issues and a lot of people are constantly talking to us about how we should view the world. You can't watch a TV show. You can't can't even watch a football game and listen to the commentators as the Vikings beat the Saints this afternoon. You know, in in the commercials, they're all screaming at you and yelling at you about how you should view the world and what you're morality should be. And, and whether they realize it or not, they are preaching a doctrine to you. And just in case you wonder, I do have Viking socks on, you know, rooting for my team here. But um, anyways, but we live in a world that's constantly bombarding us and telling us how to view the world. And it is impacting the churches that we are in and the denominations. And, and just this past week, um, News came out that the Methodist denomination, one of the largest denominations in the world, actually, and certainly in the United States, is splitting over issues related to LGBTQ things. And that's not the only issue that faces the church. There's all kinds of issues. And in and, and many churches, Sunday morning has is, is really been watered down to a 20-minute self-help TED Talk more than it is about the truth of the scripture. And, and so in this context that we live in, it's important that we kind of go back and as Johnny and, and led us in that song and we talked about the cornerstone, Jesus being our cornerstone, as we go into 2020, that's kind of the point of this series, is going back to what does it mean? What is the cornerstone? What is the foundation of our faith? How, what are the things that we need for the Christian life? So Peter in, in in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You know, in the world we live in, we hear a lot of messages that I think are misleading us. You know, we'll hear this afternoon you know, uh, as they interview whatever football players, generally from the, the winning team, sometimes from the losing team, but often from, from the winning team, and they'll say, you know, hey, why don't you give us a secret for how you guys were successful in running the ball today, or whatever the case might be, and, and almost, almost 100% guarantee that at some point, one or many, probably many of those players, as they are interviewed, gonna, are going to say something like this, well, we just had to believe in ourselves, and I just, and that always blows my mind, you know, that whole message, because the world comes and says, just believe in yourself and you can accomplish this. Believe in yourself and you can do this. You know, set, set goals. And again, setting goals is good. I, told, I shared a goal that I've set with you guys. Like, I, setting goals is good. And, and the world comes, set goals, write it down, be disciplined. Again, I'm in favor of discipline. Scripture tells us we should be disciplined. But this idea that, that we can kind of will into existence this idealistic life is just false doctrine. I don't know how 
self-aware you are. But when people go, hey, John, you just got to believe in yourself. I just want to go, you clearly don't know me like I know me. Like, I just got to be honest with you. Like, I, I, believing in me is not a good idea. I'm, I'm, I'm fallen. I'm flawed. I'm, I'm a broken human just like everybody else. There's, there's nothing special about, about me that can will anything into existence. But that's the message of the world because they don't have the resources that go beyond that. But what we find in, in, in Peter is Peter writes to the Christians in Asia Minor who are surrounded by all these things. He doesn't say believe in yourself, right? Instead, he says in verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. In other words, the life of faith is powered by God. It's not powered by your own willpower. It's not powered by setting a goal. And again, I'm in favor of goals. I set goals. I try to accomplish things. Those are good and positive things. But my life of faith, my ability or inability, well, my ability, I should say, to live a Christian life is powered by God. My inability is when I try to power it on my own. When I try to will myself into the godly life, into the Christian life, I try to discipline myself into it, and I should do those things, but I have to be powered by God. The life of faith is powered by God. The secret, the first secret to living a Christian life is recognizing that truth. We are not capable of providing our own salvation from sin. No amount of discipline can accomplish a godly life apart from the power of God. The good news is, You're not on your own. If you have responded to the message of the gospel, to Jesus Christ, to him going to the cross, dying and paying the price for our sins and rising from the dead, conquering sin and death, if you have responded to that in in a faithful way and and putting your faith in him for, for life, for life eternal, then you're not alone. You're powered by God to live the Christian life. Think of it like this. If you are, if you're a, a car guy or, or gal, then, then you'll appreciate this. And, and, and I, as I was thinking about how do I, how do I help illustrate this, and it's kind of like this. I have a, I have a diesel truck. Um, it's actually my mother-in-law's, but I, I have a diesel truck that I drive sometimes. And, and I'm, I'm kind of paranoid about the whole thing because my other cars aren't diesel. And so I'll, I'll be driving my diesel truck and I'll pull up to the gas station. And, and I like always, and, I, and I, like I said, I'm paranoid about it because I'm so fearful that someday I'm just gonna be out of it, zoned out. I'm gonna pick up the gas, I'm gonna open it, I'm gonna start putting unleaded in my diesel truck. That's a bad idea, really bad idea. So I don't know if you, if you know this, but, but diesel fuel has lubricant in it. So it lubricates the engine as part of it, and it's designed to burn different. So here's what happens. You put unleaded gasoline in a diesel vehicle, and all of a sudden, the little mini explosions that are happening inside those cylinders, they're happening at the wrong time, and, they're, and they don't have the right amount of power. And all of a sudden, your pistons are harmed, your rings are harmed, your, the, the rods are, are messed up, and everything is, is totally messed up. And you go fill a, a diesel truck with unleaded fuel, you might drive a mile. And that's only because there was probably already that much diesel fuel in the line. Because after that, your engine's going to start making noise. Okay, and everybody who just got lost by all the engine stuff, let's just put it this way. It stops working, okay? Like it, it breaks. It's broken. You can't drive. 
Because you put the wrong fuel in your truck. So I literally, when I go and look, I'm always like, I'm always like, okay, that handle's green, right? You know, like if there's a person next to me, I'm like, is that green? They're like, yeah, it's green. Okay, I'm, I can put that one in my truck, right? I'm paranoid about it because of the damage that it can do. In the same way, when we put our faith in ourselves or we put our faith in something other than God to power our life of faith, it breaks. Now, it might not completely stop like a diesel engine would, but all of a sudden, our life starts making noises. Things aren't working quite right. We start to experience things in a, in a way that we know something's wrong, something's broken, but we're not quite sure how to fix it, and it's all because we're, we're operating on the wrong kind of power or the wrong kind of fuel, if you will. The power of God is the fuel for a godly life. God is more than fuel, though. He gives us a direction for our faith, right? As a matter of fact, the author uh, of he, uh, the, or, uh, uh, Peter says this in verse 4. He says, Through these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Here's the point. God doesn't just come along and say, trust me. How many of y'all grew up with like brothers or sisters that you had, you had more than like one? Like you had two or more, right? Yeah, okay. And some of you may, maybe even if you have one, this can happen too, but I grew up, my, my, my family life's confusing, right? And I won't explain it all right now, but I always tell people I'm the youngest, oldest, middle, only child. And as a matter of fact, I saw uh, my ste- I saw several. I saw a couple of my brothers and one of my sisters over the holidays, and and uh, I, and, and I saw one of the stepbrothers on the one side, and, and my stepsister on that same side, my dad's side. Uh, I don't see them very often, and I saw them, and I told them this story about how I described my birth order conundrum. You know, I'm the youngest, oldest, middle, only child, and I explained it to him. If you want to, if you want to understand how it works, just talk to me after the service. I'll tell you. But point is, it's confusing, right? But I grew up with a lot of brothers. The household I grew up in, I had I had four stepbrothers. Now, here's the thing. When I was 13, my mom gets remarried, and all of a sudden, I'm the oldest of five, right? So I'm the oldest of five, and there used to be an oldest of four. And so the birth, birth order kind of gets messed up. I was 13. He was 11, right? So now I'm the oldest. He's used to being the oldest, and, and you know what happens, you know? We got to figure out who's the oldest, if you know what I'm saying, Right? And so we kind of we went through that process, but, but in the household I grew up in, there were certain things that you just got wise to after a while. In other words, if one of my brothers, my brother Aaron, who was that 11-year-old that I just told you about and I saw over the weekend, if he came up to, or over the holidays, if he comes up to me and he says, hey, John, smell this, your automatic answer is, no way, I'm not smelling that, right? It doesn't matter, what it is. And then it's always, it's a, no, no, no. And he'll, this is what he'll say, no, 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 no. And then he'll say this, trust me. And you can almost hear the evil laughter, right? But there isn't an audible evil laughter, but it trains you after, because you smell, you, you know, you trust him once. If you're really dumb like me, you maybe trust him twice, right? But then as soon as they come up or they say, hey, John, taste this or whatever it is, you know, you, 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 build up like an immunity to the things they're saying. Like, I don't trust you because you've not earned my trust. As a matter of fact, what you've taught me is that I should absolutely not trust you. But God's not like that. 
That's not God. As a matter of fact, what we have in Scripture, we have a lot of things. The Bible is many things. One of the things that it is, is a record of God fulfilling his promises throughout redemptive history. And as a matter of fact, we, we find the, the author of, of Hebrews talks about this whole idea of, of faith and having faith. And, and, and the word in the Greek can be translated faith or trust. And sometimes I, I kind of lean towards trust because faith is kind of, kind of been um, harmed the, the concept of faith, especially in our culture, because when it comes to uh, faith in religious circles, people outside of those circles, circles often look at the people in the religious circles and they go, oh, well, that's blind faith. Faith is, faith is absent of any kind of reason or logic or any of those things. Faith is, is believing something in spite of the evidence, but that's absolutely not what Scripture teaches. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews Chapter 11, verse 4, the author of Hebrews writes this. He says, um, I'm sorry, in verse 1 of, uh, of Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And here's what happens. People will go to that, and I've even read books where, where atheists, philosophers, will go to that and say, and say, see, faith is confidence in what we hope for. And they, they, they interpret hope as some kind of like wishful, blind thinking. Like, it's just, it's just a nice idea, and so we're going to wish for it, and that's not, not how that word should be understood. And assurance about what we do not see, and they, they interpret that as in spite of the evidence or, 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 or whatever. They say, in spite of the logic and the evidence you believe. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying at all. He's saying something completely different. He says, now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. But then he says, this is what the ancients were commended for. And he spends an entire chapter where he goes back to the Old Testament and he goes back to the people who had faith in God and he goes back to the idea that God had fulfilled those promises along the way. In other words, what he says is there's a hope that's beyond this that we do not yet see. It's been promised to us by God and it's down the road and that's the promise we look forward to and we don't see it yet, but it's a hope that's based on a God who has already fulfilled all of these other promises. In other words, this is the opposite of my stepbrothers who said, smell this. This is the one who, when they say, smell this, you say, it's going to be great. Because you trust them, because they've built up that trust. God has built up a trust because he's answered and fulfilled his promises throughout scripture and we can look back and we can see the record of those promises being fulfilled and so what we hope for is a promise that he has made in the future that we can be confident of we don't yet see it but we know we will see it why because he's got a history and a background of fulfilling his promises in other words it's faith based on reason it's a faith based on evidence not a blind faith. That's not what God asks of us. But there's more to this faith. God doesn't only say, hey, there's this thing out here. There's this, this promise out here. He gives it direction. And, and, and I think we could put it this way. The life of faith has an eternal perspective. The Christian life isn't about God fulfilling some kind of promise to make life easy or fill up our bank account. God's promise is, is of a great life, but it is an eternal life. The promises Peter is talking about are promises with an eternal perspective. 
As a matter of fact, if you turn, to pay, turn a few pages to your right to chapter 3, verse 11, he talks about these promises, and he's talking about the future and, and the world and the universe we live in, and this is what he says. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? In other words, the world and the universe will eventually be destroyed in some particular way that he just described. And so he says, based on that, because of that, how should you now live, right? And then he answers the question. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But then listen to verse 13. But in keeping with his what? Promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Living the Christian life isn't about living for this life. It is living this life with the next life in mind. This is eternal perspective, this idea of eternal perspective. We should, that should be on the top of our, of our minds all the time. As we go through life, as we think about the decisions we make today and tomorrow, whether it's at work, whether it's in relationships, whether it's whatever it is, every aspect of our life, we don't make those decisions for today and tomorrow. We make those decisions with an eternal perspective in mind. But can I be honest? It's hard to do that, isn't it? And we just got through the holidays through Christmas and New Year's. And for many of us, it was a great time. Maybe we traveled. Maybe people traveled to us. Maybe we just were at home, but we were with a loved one or friends or whatever the case might be. And we gathered together. Maybe we ate a meal together. Maybe we, you know, exchanged presents of of, of some kind and and had a good time. And maybe it was a, a pleasant experience, a nice time to kind of get away, to back away from all the stuff in the world. But that's not the case for everyone. And I mentioned earlier about Dixie, our, our the neighbor to our church, um, who's, she's such a sweet lady. She's always telling me what the price of corn is, and I get great deals on corn, man. I'm just telling you, because Dixie keeps me up to date. But, uh, you know, her and her husband, um, JP, passed away, but he passed away on Christmas Eve. And sometimes, you know, you ha- that's tough, right? Christmas and New Year's and those times, they're not always great times for everyone. I mean, Christmas Eve is going to be a rough time for, for Dixie next year. The holidays can be tough. We've lost a loved one or, or there's relational strife and all of a sudden, you know, that relative that you haven't talked to in two years, you're getting together with them and you're going to see them face to face and the stress level builds up and, and, uh, and you're thinking about the finances because you want to be generous and buy these gifts for, for this person or that person or this group of people. And, and, but you look at the bank account and you're going, but I don't really have the money. And, and so sometimes you make bad decisions and you put it on your credit card. Don't do that. Okay, but, the, but we, we, we feel this pressure and it's because somebody's buying a gift for us and then there's always that, that this one always gets me, right? Somebody buys me a gift and I'm like, oh man, I didn't get them a gift. You know, you know what I'm talking about. But it's not even about that, but all of these things in our life come and they overwhelm us. We can't see past the immediate. It's hard because we're worried about how we're gonna pay our bills, worried about how we're gonna survive, we're worried about how we're gonna relationally get along with this person or that person, we're worried about our our children and how they're growing up and the world they're growing up in, we're we're worried about this, we're worried about politics, we're worried about this, that, and the other thing, and and everything's overwhelming us, and we think that whoever the next president is gonna be is gonna, that that somehow they are either gonna destroy the world or save the world, And, and can I just be honest with you? They're not that powerful. Because only God is sovereign. 
And sometimes we see those things and they overwhelm us and we can't see past those temporal things and we have to see past them towards an eternal perspective that is far beyond this world. The life of faith lives with that kind of eternal perspective. It sees beyond the immediate. So I was thinking about this. It impacts how we live as adults, but it also impacts our kids. And sometimes I think we teach our kids to have a very limited perspective in the world. Most of the time, our goals as parents are, well, I, I just want, I want to keep them out of trouble. I want them to get good grades because I can't afford college and they need a scholarship, Right? And I want them to go to college or trade school or whatever it is, whatever our view of that is, and prepare them in some way so that they can get a job, they can support themselves, quit living in my basement because eventually I'm going to need to live in their basement. Amen? And so we, we, we kind of we're worried about these, these temporal things. And so we want them to, to get the right education, get the right job so they can be a productive member of society, but we never talk to them about the eternal things. You know, when our kid comes home with a bad grade and, you know, I I don't want to diminish the importance of good grades. It's important. It's important in our family. It's important for my my son. And and we emphasize that and and those kinds of things. But can I be honest? If he brings home a bad grade, you know what I'm not going to do? Worry about it that much? I'm going to try to have an eternal perspective, right? Can we begin asking our kids if they're in, elementary school even, or or middle school, or high school, or whatever it is, and begin to ask them, hey, how does this affect your eternity? Are you living this life now for the life that is to come? Because YOLO is a lie. You don't only live once. You live at least twice. I'm not talking about reincarnation. I'm talking about being risen from the dead. I'm talking about the resurrection. I'm talking about the new heavens and the new earth that God will establish How do we help our kids as parents understand the eternal perspective, asking the larger questions about faith that goes beyond what stares us in the face at the moment? Let's revisit verse 4 one more time, though. Through these, it says, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, as, as, as I, you read that, you go, participating in the, what does that mean? Participate in the, does that mean you're like some kind of little God? Can I just tell you you're not, all right? Not even close. What does that mean? But we were created as image bearers. You go back to, to Genesis, and it, and, it, and it talks about in Genesis chapter 1 that we, we are created in the image of God. And what that means is that we are to reflect the one who created us, right? We, we are to reflect him. And so what it means to participate in that divine nature is to reflect him the way we were intended to. In other words, to join him through obedience and holy and godly living. And in that way, by living the life of faith, by living in a holy and godly way, we participate in that divine nature. But the life of faith follows the precepts of God because of the promises of God. The life of faith follows the precepts of God because of the promises of God. God gives us his promises not to force compliance. God is not this overbearing, controlling, legalistic, here's all my rules and you better follow them or I will smite thee. That's not God, okay? That's Bruce Almighty. 
if you saw that. Just dated myself, I think. But, right, that's not God. The idea isn't that God is controlling you and he's giving you all these rules as, as some kind of punishment. That's not how this whole thing works. Faithful obedience is a trust relationship with the God who sacrificed himself so that justice and grace might prevail together. I think a lot of times we, we, we make an error in our thinking as Christians, those, those of us who put our faith in Jesus. We, t- we like justice. We think God's a just God. And then we go over here on this end of the scale and we go, but God's, God's, God's got, you know, extends his grace as well. So there's grace and there's justice. And we put them on the two opposite ends of a, of a spectrum. And can I just tell you, that's completely wrong. Don't think of justice and grace in that way. Because that puts them as competing characteristics of God. But God's characteristics never compete. They always complement. Justice and grace are both accomplished. It's like a hand in a glove. They fit together. God satisfies his justice through his son, Jesus Christ, because our sins must be paid for. They must be atoned for. And when Jesus went to the cross, the divine eternal son of God, when he took on human flesh, he went to the cross, he shed his blood, he went to the grave. Up until that point, it wasn't that unusual. Somebody died on a cross, big deal. But he rose again to life. And when that happened, all of the things that happened with his death, when his blood was shed, that provided forgiveness for us so that God's justice was satisfied and we experienced grace because Jesus paid the price for our sin for us. They don't compete justice and grace. They complement each other. God gives us the precepts because of the promises. And the promises aren't for necessarily a better life now but he promises a new heaven and a new earth. He promises something in the future, something that we live towards. In other words, it isn't our obedience that produces faith. Instead, it is our faith that produces obedience. That's really important. I'm going to say it again. It isn't our obedience that produces faith. That's wrong. That's not right. It's our faith in Jesus that produces obedience. It's because of Jesus' sacrifice and the promises of an eternal future that we now live in faithful obedience to him. They're not laws, the precepts are not laws and rules to manipulate, but truths that lead to a life of abundance that cannot be found in the shallow, fruitless pursuits of this world. The precepts of God are built on trust and faith in God because of his promises and his faithful fulfillment of those promises. Faithful obedience in the here and now is because of the promises we look forward to. In other words, our faith produces obedience. If you jump down to verse 10, it says this in, in chapter 1 of Second Peter. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to conform or to confirm, sorry, your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ. In other, in other words, well, here's what Peter's doing. He, he comes to them and he starts with faith and he adds on all these characteristics. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. We're going to be going over each of those characteristics. But the foundational one was faith. And he says if you do, not, if, you, if you practice these things, not only the faith part, but all the things that he builds on top of that foundation, 
If you do these things, then you will confirm your calling and election. Now here's, these words have like loaded meaning in the, in, in the realm of theology and doctrine, right? Like we have had books and, and doctoral theses written and, and debates on YouTube and, and all over about, about what calling and election mean. And can I just be honest with you? I'm not going to solve that for you today. Here's what I'm going to tell you because everybody wants to know. Is my salvation firm? Can I have assurance in it? And here's what I want to tell you. That faith in Jesus produces obedience in life. Now that doesn't mean perfection in life, but obedience. It produces a trajectory of obedience to God. You want to know if you have salvation, if you're saved? Self-reflection is your faith producing obedience. If it's not, talk to me, talk to Pastor Johnny, talk to your life group leader. Let's get that right. Because when we put our faith in Jesus, it isn't, kind of, it isn't this thing you do once and you can forget about it. It's something that puts, that puts into place a whole different perspective on the world, a whole different way of living, a whole different way of approaching all the main and important issues of life, and a whole different perspective that's not temporal but eternal. And it produces obedience to God in your life. In other words, our faith and salvation are confirmed in our obedience. So as we think about unlocking the secrets of the Christian life, the first thing we need to get right, the foundational element, is faith. A life of faith is a life of obedience. When we put our faith in God, what that means is we come along and we say, Jesus came, the eternal divine of Son of God, took on human flesh, He went to the cross. He sacrificed himself. He shed his blood. His body was broken. He was put in the grave, dead and buried. And because of the the blood that was shed, our sins are forgiven. God's justice is satisfied. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. Many witnessed the resurrected Jesus after his death. 500 people at one time, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He resurrected from the dead, and that gives us hope in an eternal life in the future. And faith in that ought to be producing a life of obedience. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you that it is.